0: The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. From director Laura McGann, The Deepest Breath captures the gripping mix of destiny and danger at the heart of two athletes' undeniable bond, and offers a never-before-seen glimpse into one of the most dangerous sports on the planet. The Daily Beast calls the documentary heart-stopping, expansive, and intimate. Watch The Deepest Breath, now on Netflix.
1: This film is more an experience like a regular movie, and the experience is about the work of a painter who I esteem very much because he's doing something like no other painter is doing. He believes that nothing escapes painting, so he can paint anything. The universe, the macrocosm, religion, philosophy, poetry, myth, name it. Everything for him can be painted. And that, if you see what he means by that, is an amazing
0: experience. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, we're talking to Vim Vendors, director of Anselm. Anselm had its world premiere at the 2023 Cannes Film Festival and its North American premiere at the Telluride Film Festival. Bim Venders is a legendary film director whose films include Wings of Desire, Paris, Texas, his road movie trilogy, as well as numerous documentaries, including Pina about the dancer and choreographer Pina Bausch, which, like Anselm, was shot in 3D. Anselm chronicles the art of German painter and sculptor Anselm Kiefer. It was a real honor and a pleasure to talk to Vim Vendors. I feel like I've grown up with his movies, Wings of Desire, Paris, Texas, his earlier road movie trilogy. These films really made a huge impression on me when they came out and still stand the test of time. As acclaimed as Anselm Kiefer is, I really was not familiar with this artist or his works. So this documentary was really eye-opening and allowed me not just to learn about this artist, but really become immersed in his whole world. His studios themselves are works of art. They're vast. They're fascinating. They incorporate art elements in them. And one of the delights of the film is watching Anselm on his bike or making the rounds through these giant spaces and pulling out these huge canvases painting on them, using a blowtorch on them, and really just being completely in his element as he's making his art in these incredible spaces. Given the artist and given the environment, it makes total sense that Vim Vendors wanted to shoot this in 3D. The experience of the movie is immersive. I found my interview with Vim Vendors to be immersive and incredibly enjoyable. Anselm is being released by Sideshow and Janice Films and opens in LA in 3D at the Lemley Glendale. I would also add that Vim Vendors' new fiction film, Perfect Days, from a script written by Vendors and Takuma Takasaki, is Japan's entry for this year's Best International Feature at the Academy Awards. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Instagram at Top Docs Pod and on X or Twitter, also at Top Docs Pod. And now, my conversation with Vim Vendors, Director of Anselm. Vim Vendors, welcome to Top Docs.
1: Thank you so much, Ken. It's a pleasure to talk to you. You in California, me in the countryside near Berlin. Wonderful. I will picture you there. Raining. Don't try too hard to picture it.
0: Right. So the artist Anselm Kiefer was born in Germany. Speaking of Germany, was born in Germany in 1945. You too were born in Germany in 1945, a few months apart, I believe. And images of post-war Germany are shown at various points in the film, including at one point children playing amidst the rubble. What are some of your own early memories of growing up in this very particular, unique time and place?
1: Well, exactly that, playing in the rubble, living among ruins. And the only thing that seemed still to function was the streetcar in the middle of the street. Other than that, there were heaps and piles of rubble left and right. Some houses were like, still the ground floor was left, or maybe even two floors. People scrambled together, but most houses were down, and we were living in a house that had survived. The first floor had survived. We lived in my grandfather's pharmacy, which had occupied the first floor. So we were living in a former pharmacy, and my father was a young doctor, and we were just getting by. I lived in the ruins, and seemed like a beautiful thing seemed like a very adventurous place and if you don't know the world and you take your own surrounding for reality and for normal and so that's it that's the world it's ruins and took me a while to understand that somewhere else the world was much more beautiful
0: so even though you you were born in the same year in the same country it's a big country i don't think you knew each other until later you and anselm kiefer did you meet the man first or encounter the work of Anselm?
1: Well, I encountered the work. I saw some of it at the early show at the Documenta. I saw books of his. I saw shows of his. I encountered the man in 91. I was editing a film until the end of the world in Berlin. And every night went to my regular restaurant next door. And one night this man comes in who's smoking a cigar, which was normal these days. Everybody in that restaurant was smoking and he looked around and saw me in an empty place on my table and came and sat down and it was Anselm. I knew who he was but never met him. He knew who I was but had never met me. So we started to talk and eat and smoke and drink and we were the last people to walk out of the restaurant late at night and he said, well, why don't we meet again tomorrow? And that became a long friendship. We actually dined together for almost two weeks every night, spoke a lot, told each other our lives. So he knew that I really wanted to be a painter, and I knew that he really wanted to be a filmmaker. So we figured we were born to do something together and decided and shook hands on it, but it got sidetracked for 30 years until we got to start doing it 30 years later.
0: Definitely better late than never. So I'm glad you you both came back to the project.
1: I don't know if I would have been able to do it at the time. I had not made any documentary. And uh, Anselm had not started to work out of France. He was still living in Germany. And he moved to the south of France that year. And that's where really his most amazing work started, which is a whole landscape, a whole artscape that he did in the south of France with almost 30 or oh, By now, it's more than 30 buildings of artworks and underground structures and an amphitheater and an underground crypt. It's an amazing, adventurous landscape that he filled with his work. He invited me there in 2019 for the first time, and I'd never seen it. And he said, well, it's about time you see it, Vim. And so I, a few weeks later, I made it, and I visited him there, and Visiting Bar Jacques, which is the name of the place, convinced me that after all these years, after all these conversations, let's do something together, it was about time. So when I had seen Bar Jacques for all day long on my own, he had the good sense to leave me alone and not guide me. And after a day, you could use three days to, to see it, but after a day, I had a good impression and saw him at night and I said, well, answer him, it's now or never, let's do it.
0: So I think that story indicates, you know, an interesting collaboration that you had with Anselm, for one, just what you said about him leaving, inviting you there and then leaving you alone to discover the place and the space yourself. Um, and I feel like this film is not so much about Anselm as it is with Anselm. Yep. Can you describe your collaborative process on the film?
1: It all started with the two of us talking for about a week, six, seven hours a day. We just had a sound recorder running and I asked him everything I always had wanted to know and to be prepared and to not have to ask him doing the film. So we spoke about everything concerning his work, we spoke about mythology, we spoke about the war, post war time in Germany, his youth, his stance against fascism. His love for poetry. Well, we spoke about everything that you can possibly speak about if you want to make a movie about this man. And then I asked him, well, (laughs) what do you expect from me? What sort of movie do you think I can possibly make? And he said, well, I don't want to interfere in any way. I don't actually want to see anything in writing. And I will never come to your editing room. And really, actually, the only thing I would love you to do would be to surprise me in the end. And that's about it. Don't show me anything that you write. Don't tell me what you're shooting. And whatever you want to shoot, just let us know and we make it possible. And other than that, include me out. And that's what we did. And I did surprise him. When he finally saw the film, he sat there for a few minutes to digest it. And then the first thing he said was, well, you kept your promise. Then you did surprise me.
0: One of the elements of his role in the film, though, is he kind of acts in the film. I don't know if act is the right word, but he's, you know, he's there and clearly there's some direction, there's some choreography of his actions going on. When did you decide that you wanted him to interact with the landscape of the film?
1: Well, it's his landscape, it's his work, it's his studios, it's his creation. He appears a few times, not all the times. There's a lot of stuff where he wasn't even present when we shot. And he does what he always does. He's, he, I didn't direct him. I didn't tell him to do anything. He did what he would do in his studio, and we followed him sometimes very closely. A few things I did ask him to do because he did them when I visited him. He always rides his bike through his studio because it's too vast to walk it so once he's riding his bike but as he's always doing it it didn't feel like i was directing him he's doing what he's always doing and we filmed a lot without him i filmed with his son who played his own father when he was like 40 years old and nobody knew him and he lived as a completely unknown painter in the in the woods I filmed him as a young man because I felt his youth, his childhood was very important for him. So that was sort of a reenactment, even if it was speculation. I wasn't there when he was a child. He told me a lot about his childhood and I took my liberties of inventing it and of inventing how this young guy already envisioned a life as a painter. So I knew know nothing of that. He heard that his son was playing him and he was very much afraid that his son couldn't act and was very much afraid how well he had done it. We shot, I shot seven times. Over two and a half years, I came and shot seven times, each time for a week, ten days, because initially the work seemed so overwhelming and the task so incomprehensible, how to get this this whole thing together. And how to give to justice to the vastness of his work. Already in the beginning, I told him, Anselm is not just going to be done in one shoot. I'll come back several times. So I shot seven times altogether and over two and a half years and edited the film always in between. So for two and a half years, for more than two and a half years, I was in my editing room where I slowly put it together and each new shoot added a new aspect And slowly the whole image came together. And in the end, I was finally, it was felt I had enough stuff to make this movie. Then the last task was to show it to Ansem and see if I had kept my promise. But I survived that as well.
0: Well, it's interesting to hear about your process because it sounds very painterly to me, which is you shoot something, you stand back, you look at it in the editing room, you shoot some more, it feels like the work of a painter almost.
1: Well, I think that's my approach to filmmaking. If you do not thoroughly immerse in your subject, you're doing something wrong. So to make a film about a painter, it did need a painterly approach. You had to film it like you were making a huge painting about the man and his work. I mean, it's not a biopic. The film is not a portrait of, Anson Kiefer, it's a portrait of his work. It is strictly about the work and the vastness of the work. I needed to become a painter in order to make it from, to see his world from inside out and not only like a catalog of his work. I had to make it an experience because his art, more than any other living painter I know, lives on the encounter with it. And it is like nothing else. I mean, like this landscape in the south of France, it's a huge territory. It's some sort of adventure park of art. And then he has his studios, who also filmed a huge exhibition he had at the Doge Palace in Venice, the actual palace. And he had a fantastic exhibition inside. So we covered a lot of territory. And I had to, each time really completely immerse into that period of his life in his youth in the time when he was an unknown painter for 15 years. Nobody ever came to see him, no art critic, no collector, no, no galleries. Nobody knew him for 15 years, and he almost already planted the entire thing he was going to create for his entire life. It's already all there. Only nobody saw it. So that film was a huge task, and to understand how you can possibly do it. And I didn't have any model. I mean, I did see films people had made about painters. But the more I saw, I I realized there there was nothing I could use. I couldn't use any of the approaches. We had to find our own approach. And I love that about documentaries, that you can find a language for something, and you don't know it yet when you start. You can find a language for dance, and it became Pina, and you can find a language for photography, it became Soul of the Earth. And here I had to find a language for painting, and that became handsome.
0: It's interesting to consider the full breadth of your career because, of course, you became known and celebrated for your fiction film starting in the 70s all the way till the present. You have a, a new film out this year, fiction film called Perfect Days. Congratulations about that film. It's only been more recently that you've been known for your documentaries, but I would point out that you've been making them as far back as 1980 with Lightning Over Water. You know, you have a long relationship with documentary. And I'm curious, what does documentary allow you to explore as an artist that excites you the most?
1: Well, it, it makes it sound as if I was working on something altogether different when I started making documentaries. But if you look at my fictional work, it is very documentary approach. Kings of the Road is a documentary about the German border in the 70s and the death of theaters, movie theaters in the countryside. A lot of my films have a very documentary approach. Wings of Desire, as outrageous it is as fiction, is the best possible documentary of West Berlin before the fall of the war. I've always tried to let as much reality come into my fiction as possible. So when I then started to make, slowly started to make in the 80s, and I just started to make documentaries and, and sometimes do a documentary after a fiction film and then do a documentary again and then a fiction film. So I'd really, I really worked in both fields and they became... So related, I really thought I was making a a straight document, a music documentary with Buena Vista Social Club, and only in the end, in the editing room realized, well, I would followed a fairy tale. And the story of these men that I had been fortunate enough to follow in that year was from being sh- shining shoes in the streets of Havana to, being superstars in the Beatles at Carnegie Hall, and that is a fairy tale if ever there was one. So, I feel more and more like that division between documentary and fiction is artificial. And I made my fictional films with a lot of documentary desires and and documentary approaches. And my fictional films, I just said that, like Perfect Days, the one that is out later this year, is a very fictional film about a man who's cleaning toilets. But the way we shot it was really the documentary approach. We followed this man as if we were making a documentary. I really tried to use documentary methods on my fiction and fictional elements in my documentaries.
0: I love to hear that you mix those two together and that you really don't see a dividing line creatively between the two.
1: They have something else in common. It just crosses my mind. When they started out making fiction and feature films, I only made one kind of movies. I made road movies for a long time. And that in itself is related to the documentary. The road movie is already the only kind of fictional films that you can shoot in chronological order because you have the road and you go, you start it one day and you end it at the end. And the road is your screenplay and uh, your storyline. And I was able to make some of these films without a script, truly without a script. Even Wings of Desire and Paris, Texas were largely made without a script. And more and more as I got older, that became impossible. Filmmaking became much more streamlined. And you had to come up with a script and it had to be doctored for two years before you can make it. And my kind of approach to do films, feature films, fictional films, largely without scripts became undoable. And I turned to documentaries because they allowed me to work the way I love to work. So that's part of the reason why I mix them, why I like to mix them so much. It allowed me to work the way I really like best to work from intuition and to not know where it's going to take you and to not know the ending and certainly not shoot the ending before I shoot the beginning.
0: Documentary has also allowed you to explore 3D. Pina, your great documentary about the dancer and choreographer Pina Bausch was shot in 3D. So is Anselm. What is it about 3D that you find so captivating and such a great creative tool?
1: I find it an incredible medium to dive into somebody else's work or art. In the case of Pina, it was dance. And in order to approach her very own interpretation of dance, because there's has nothing to do with ballet, she called it dance theater. And it was an invention of her own. And to enter that highly emotional work, I needed to be in the same realm as her dancers, and their realm is space. Dancers need space, and that's what they do. They work with their bodies in space. And again, I had planned that movie for 30 years, a little bit like with Ansem, and then I never had the courage to do it because I didn't know how to enter that space of the dancers, and I didn't know how to represent Pina's art until 3D came up, and that finally showed me the tools and the language and the medium I could use. And that 3D is a language of its own, a film language of its own, and its very own medium, even if it's today only used superheroes and animation films. It has a poetic quality, and it has its own way to take you into another world that is mind-blowing, and unfortunately, only very rarely had the time to show its capacities and its potential. So for me, 3D is the ideal medium to take you into somebody's world and to just put you there and experience it. And you're there so much more as an audience and you experience so much more than you could ever in front of a flat screen. And that's why I love it so much for the documentary.
0: And also given that space and vastness are such an important part of Anselm's world, these giant studio spaces or landscapes that you've talked about, it seems to lend itself to 3D as well. I wanted to ask about, you said 3D is a language of its own, and I found it fascinating that the first 15 minutes or so of the film go by, and there's basically no spoken words. There's some, you know, whispering. There's some talk, but it's very, very minimal. Yet language and words and text are all very important parts of Anselm's work, which comes across in the film. And I was just curious how you approach that because you wanted to clearly give justice to the written word and the spoken word without losing the lyrical visual flow of the film. So how did you walk that line?
1: Ansem does use words a lot. He does use lines of poetry and some of his biggest collaborators, so to speak, are poets, not that they actually work on something together. Ansem uses quotes of poetry. For him, it's material, just like paint. Words are material for him, and words matter a lot for him. He's one of the few painters who writes these words and these lines of poetry into his paintings. So words matter a lot for him. I really had to represent that important part of his creative act, that marriage between words and images, But on the other hand, I didn't want to make a film with talking heads and have people express their opinions and people say something about his art. I thought it could stand for itself and people would just have to be exposed to the work. And the work, yes, it did include words, a lot of words sometimes on a painting. But people should decipher it on their own, I felt. And I didn't want to give any opinions on St. Certainly not my own, so I do not appear, you right. don't hear my voice. I really wanted his art to speak for yeah. him, for itself. And the audience to just find their way through it and be exposed to it and be in awe of somebody who's who who made such an unbelievable amount of work that it seemed almost inconceivable that one man produced all this.
0: It does. And one of the things That I found myself continually surprised by in the film was how you managed to capture the scale of the work, but also surprised me all all the while with what I was seeing and how vast it was. So, for instance, shooting in the studio outside Paris, when we see the art and then we see the human form and I kept going, oh, my gosh, the human is so small in the frame, I was expecting it to be much bigger.
1: Yeah, in this case, with his studio space, it was important to see the space first and not have a relation to the human figure and to the painter himself in there. And when he appears, you think, well, how can this be? Is this, is he a dwarf? But no, he's a tall man. Only inside the studio, he appears like a tiny little figure. So, and 3D helps you to understand that relation. And the film needed to be sometimes very close to things and the surfaces of his paintings because they're very, very multi-layered and he puts objects in front of them. And so the texture of his paintings already needs 3D as something that gives you the transparency and that doesn't represent his painting like a flat reproduction, but it shows the depth, the depths of time that he's also bringing into his work. And 3D has another capacity. Of course, it shows space and all of that. And that is gorgeous, but it makes you see more. And nobody really mentions that if you talk about 3D, that you see more than ever on a screen because the screen is even no longer there and through the screen. But what you see needs a different capacity in your brain as well. And it's obvious that if you see 3D images, you regions of your brain are operating that are always turned off when you see a movie because some regions of your brain you only need to differentiate space and it's huge areas of your brain actually that you need to create space in your head because space only exists if you put it together if you look at the world with one eye you don't see space you see a flat world in 3d your brain is working overtime and parts of your brain and also emotional parts of your brain are active that are otherwise just sleeping in a movie you do see more i mean it you do see more than ever before and unfortunately that medium enabling you to see more is has not been used to see art or reality more but it's been used to see outrageous fiction more and that is In my book, a huge scandal of the history of cinema, that it has not allowed this language to come to its full potential.
0: You mentioned earlier, you know, about the vast thematic territory that Anselm covers in his work. One of his themes is confronting Germans with their Nazi past and not letting them forget about it or ignore it. And there is a commentator in the film, heard in archival, who says... Anselm prodded incessantly at the open wound of German history. What strikes you in Anselm's work about his ability to prod, but also, I think, to get people to think and reflect?
1: Both of us grew up in a country, our childhood, our adolescence, that whole time we spent in school from 7 to 18 or 19, all of that took place in a country that used all their efforts to look forward, to create itself from scratch. Because when we were born in 1945, that country did not exist anymore. And then for the next 20, 25 years, tried to recreate itself. And the condition on which it was built was no past. We have no past. There was no past. We don't want to remember that past. All our future lies in the fact that we deny the past or forget about it. And of course, it's understandable. But if you're a young person, if you're a child and then grow up, you realize there's something wrong with it, something very, very wrong. And you cannot have a future without a past. My generation, we did try to decipher that past and have access to it. And okay, maybe you had to jump over that period of fascism, but you still had to represent it. You have to... Be aware that it happened, and then you are allowed to look into other parts of the German past and reconnect to it, even if the Nazis used a lot of the German past for their own means and abused it. And Anselm's work as a young painter was really to make people aware of that fact that all their life was built on a lie, that we didn't have a past, and that they had nothing to do with that past. Anselm's work really for years, for a decade, was 10, 20 years of his life was prodding in that wound and leading Germans to confront their past in order to also find another past behind it that we had forgotten. The whole 19th century, the whole Romanticism, it was buried along with fascism because they had used it largely, abused it largely.
0: And this gets us to the area of myth, which I think is related to history. I think it's Anselm who says in the film, myths represent another way of understanding history beyond the simply rational. It seems clearly myth is an area that the two of you share. I think it plays a role in your work. You mentioned your amazing film, Wings of Desire, and the sequel or the film that is paired with it, Far Away So Close, even to the extent that wings play a role in Anselm's sculptures and obviously in Wings of Desire. How do you see this overlap or this connection in terms of themes between your own work and Anselm's?
1: I think mythology is the entire, um, how should I say, the entire fundus of cinema. Mythology is what all of cinema was built upon. Even filmmakers who didn't study mythology or weren't really much aware of it and just told their stories, you can see that their stories built on the treasure box of myth of the human race became what we then call cinema. And uh, painters rely on mythology. Painters rely on mythical characters. Writers do that. I mean, myth is basically almost synonymous with fiction. And in order to use fiction to make people understand our world today, you do have to dive into mythology. Anson's work really largely is using mythology in order to have people understand where they live and understand the world. He borrows a lot from religion and from Jewish mythology, but also from Greek mythology and from Roman myth. They're all based in the same story, so to speak. So as filmmaker and as painter, you do have material in common, so to speak. And the, the raw material mm-hmm. of Ansem's work and of mine is mythology.
0: So the last third of the film or so, or maybe even less, there seemed to be more, more use of what I would call dramatic elements or fictional elements, we see a bit more of the young boy. And then we start to see intercutting between the boy and Anselm. Basically, what I would call, again, for shorthand, the dramatic elements seem to carry not only more screen time, but a bit more emotional weight. And I was wondering if that's something you scripted out or it just evolved in the editing.
1: It did evolve in the editing. And the more I shot, the more I realized that Anselm had managed to preserve a lot of childhood in his imagination and in his work and was in touch with his childhood. And the more I realized that some of the quality of his work was the fact that he could tap into the imagination of the young boy he was helped me to understand his work much better. I just wanted to somehow have the film approach that issue of that all of us creative people, we all, it all started in our childhood. I don't know anybody creative, filmmaker, poet, writer, musician who didn't start in his or her childhood. That's where it all begins to come together in our brains. And we, in many ways, remain the children we once were. It's not that we close that chapter and become somebody else. So I wanted to get to that point And I wanted to open the film to that realm of childhood that we still carry in ourselves, that all of us carry in ourselves, whether or not we know or not, we know a lot about it, but we constantly work with that. We constantly rely on stuff that we carry in ourselves, that we've carried in ourselves as children. Luckily, I had introduced Ansem as a little boy and the the little boy had to work overtime in the last part of the film, yes. But it's also handsome. It's not another character. It's not the boy who is, it's the same man. And if he carries the child on his shoulders in the end, it is still the same man. man. And it was an amazing find in the shoot when I had them stand by the side of, by the river, and the Rhine was a mythical is a mythical river for Germans. And we both grew up just near the Rhine, just a few hundred kilometers apart. So I had Ansem stand by that river that he stood by every day as a child. And as an impulse, at the end of the scene, I asked him, would you mind, can you imagine carrying the boy on your shoulder? And he said, yes, of course, sure. If you think that is, If you think that is something that your film can tell, and it was a lucky moment, I feel, because that became then the last shot of the film. Actually, I shouldn't be talking about it because it should be something that people see. So maybe you'd take it out.
0: Or we can just say, spoiler alert, at the beginning of this uh, question, <laughs> so people uh, know to see the film first. I was going to ask you about that shot because it is so wonderful and evocative. And what's interesting Is earlier you were talking about road movies, your own road movies trilogy, but road movies in general, and how they're by definition documentary in that they must be chronological. And here we have the opposite. We're in a documentary, quote unquote, a documentary, and you've taken these two strips of time and folded them into one. So the past and the present are there together. So it's very beautiful. And I think a great statement about as you said how childhood is and has always been a crucial part of his inspiration
1: yeah but i mean the film wanted to put the audience into a position where they can understand his work and where they confront it and i felt childhood was such an important part of his work and then i felt it was a it was allowed in a documentary to have the image of the little boy that this man once was, and not many, not enough photograph of his childhood to serve that purpose, so we created a character that was Ansem as a boy, and I felt it was a great documentary, mean, in order to reveal something about the creative act and the access you have as a creative person to a force in you that helps you be daring, and that helps you create something that didn't exist there before. And children have that capacity. Children have that imagination that is out of all proportion and that imagines everything. And I had that when I was a little boy. I know that. I know that the little boy that I was had much more imagination than the adult I am now. I felt I needed access to that in the film. So that's why we created Little answer.
0: There's a great scene near the end of the film, it's shot in black and white, I guess this is another spoiler alert, (laughs) in which you show Anselm walking on a tightrope and he's using a giant sunflower to balance himself and the sunflower is an important element in his work. It's so playful and it's delightfully Fellini-esque. Can you talk about maybe having fun with that scene? It seemed to show a lighter side of Anselm, of Vim Vendors, perhaps, and just of your collaboration with him.
1: It's lovely that you m- mentioned Fellini, because here's a director who remained a big child until the end of his life. And there is somebody who proves my theory that you have to allow yourself access to your childhood. And Fellini did that big time. It allowed me to do things that I could not have touched upon other than with words or with another talking head or with text to talk about where is creativity coming from and what sort of force is it in your life. In order to do it with images, we did invent a lot of stuff that is not really the realm of documentaries normally, but in our film it is because how do you document creativity and how to document art as such unless you take freedom to show where it's coming from? For me, that is childhood. And for Anson, certainly. He walks the tightrope, yep. Because I felt his life as a painter was a constant act of walking a tightrope. And he probably fell a few times. Nobody walks a tightrope without that experience.
0: And he probably didn't use a net either.
1: Not if you know Anselm. More, no, he would never accept a net. His art is without a net. His, it's a very risky process, his art.
0: I think we're pretty much out of time. And I, I just want to thank you so much for this interview. And And there's a quote from Anselm in the film, another quote. The greatest myth is the human race itself. And I want to... Thank you for exploring that myth here in this film by shedding light on this truly remarkable artist, and also by taking us on such a wondrous mythic journey throughout your career. You've brought us a lot of joy, a lot of wonder, and you're still doing it. You're still discovering that creativity in your childhood and bringing it to life through film. So thank you so much them for your work and for this film and for being with us today thank you so much Kent, for saying that and i hope you have a nice day out there in california i just stare into the black night and the rain right now. <laughs> i'm sure it isn't a black night in your imagination so the creative okay. process will take you into the light yep uh, even make the rain disappear have a good day great, great. Thank, thank you you too Do you have a hidden gem? A documentary that you think maybe doesn't get the attention that it deserves or has escaped some amount of public attention?
1: The documentary that is a hidden gem in my book is a film by a young woman called Sonja Kennebeck. And I know about it because it was edited by the same editor woman who did Ansem for me. And actually in our editing room where we are finished, it was called Reality Winner versus the United States. It's an amazing story of a whistleblower, a woman. It's a very strong film and it was very much taken by. And not just because it was the editor, Maxine Jörnke, who I really like a lot. We did Ansem together, but already before Sword of the Earth," she's an amazing young lady with a great intelligence for the making and for structure, but I really like this film. And the two of them, Sonia Kennebeck and Maxine, seem to be a really great crew. It was done last year and they re edited it a little bit because the reality winner came out of prison and she could actually take part
0: in the shoot. Top Docs is a production of Willy Media. This episode was produced by Ken Jacobson and Mike Merrill and edited by Mike.